Welcome back to the Freewheeling Podcast. My name is Abby Mickey. We've got a full house today to talk about the Saratizit Challenge by La Vuelta. Probably some other topics from the season because a lot of things that happened at the Vuelta kind of popped up uh, throughout the season. Plus, we're going to talk a little bit about the other news of the week. We've got mm, just kind of one transfer to talk about. And the World Championships is coming up. Lauren is going to be on the ground. So is Gracie, actually. We got two people on the ground. Very exciting. And Matt Denif is going to be on the ground getting some recordings for us as well. So that'll be really awesome because I really enjoyed having Matt on the podcasts for the Tour de France Femme of Egg Zwift. Speaking of Zwift, before we dive into all of today's topics, this episode is brought to you by Zwift. The company just launched their own direct drive trainer for just $499. 499 euro. That's like super cheap. If you have looked into getting a smart trainer in the past, they have been working on this trainer for a really long time and they finally launched it in an attempt to make the jump to using Zwift more approachable. When you buy the trainer, it'll come fully equipped. All you need to do is pick the brand and the cassette that you want on the trainer and it will come with that for you. So it's super easy. All you have to do is take out your rear wheel and put it on the trainer. I've, I think I'm right in saying that everybody here, maybe minus Amy, because you don't have a trainer. Tilda, do you, do you, do you swift? No, Tilda doesn't swift. No. <laughs> <laughs> but Lauren and I have a trainer. It just doesn't work. Well, maybe we should get you one of these swift smart trainers and you can try it out and then like report back with your, with your findings. Yes. Does do it fit onto that? like a non road bike? I don't have a road bike. I'm still lugging around a heavy old hybrid bike. I mean, I'm sure that it would. Well, we can see. I'll reach out be like, hey, Zwift. So we have two people that need to test out this trainer. <laughs> Send it over ASAP. No, but um, they're we're really grateful. brutally honest with their feedback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we're really grateful to have Zwift as a partner of the podcast. And we're really excited about everything that they're doing. This trainer is really cool because I think that Zwift is a really good company at kind of. Um, breaking down barriers when it comes to cycling. Cycling's very much like a rich person sport. There's a lot of money that you have to pour into race it to be able to race competitively. Um, and Zwift has done such a great job, especially with their Zwift Academy and also their support of the Canyon Stream generation team to make sure that, um, that there's more, more access to the sport. Uh, so it's really cool. And this is just another way that they're, they're helping to do that. So thank you so much Zwift, for sponsoring this podcast. Let's dive into the week. The Madrid challenge wrapped up on Sunday. We've got Tilda here who paid very close attention to all the stages and can run us through what happened. Let's start with the TTT. Yes. The TTT, my favorite stage of the race. Um, this is the only one where I'm struggling to tell you anything interesting about what happened because at the end of the day, it's a TTT. Uh, <laughs> but basically, yeah, all the continental Spanish teams went and put times down and they were then immediately beaten by the first World Tour teams that went. And then when the bigger World Tour teams went, those teams were beaten again. I think the team that really put down a very early fast time was Bike Exchange. Um, they put like a minute into, I think, Canyon, who had been in the hot seat previously. Um a very impressive ride from Bike Exchange. You maybe aren't a team that we think of as being a big TTT team, but actually when you look at who they took to this race, like Georgia Williams, uh, Kirsten Faulkner, obviously won the TT at Giro, Alex Manley, like it was a really good team and they just really sent it, finished with five riders um, to go in the hot seat. Um, but then Trek Segafredo came along, who won obviously the Vargada TT earlier this summer and they just beat bike exchange it was only by six seconds so it wasn't huge um and i think fdj somewhere in the middle of this came and came third which is also a little bit surprising and then yeah after track sega Friday, we just had to wait for sd works and while we started to finish we were teams that definitely wanted to put down a good time uh to protect their gc riders but weren't necessarily gonna contest for the win um, and 
yeah, they ended up slotting into fourth for SD Works and fifth for Movistar as the last team down the down the road, which meant that Trek Segafredo won. And I think I did not text Abby my full predictions of how this stage would pan out, but I think most people would have bet on Trek Segafredo if you were trying to. Yeah, but I think you would have lost points on FDJ because that was quite a ride from them. I mean, they they were fifth at at Vagarda TTT earlier in the season, but the time trial, the team time trial that kind of springs to mind with them is the Giro um, last year where they lost just boatloads of time and basically took took their GC riders out of the running before the race had even started. So I think third for, for FDJ is a pretty good result, but you're right. I mean, Trek Segafredo was going to win this time trial. I think the two results that surprised me are really SD works all the way down and forth with, you know, a strong team. They've got Lola Kopecky. She's a powerful rider. It, it translates over that they've got Demi Vollering, Marlon Rusa, like they have a really strong team. Um, and fourth for them is, is not super great. And then yeah, FDJ did really well. So those are the two results that kind of stand out to me in the TTT. Yeah. And I think the other thing that was noticeable was, was what, what riders were losing time. Obviously uh, you need four riders to cross the line. Well, your time comes from the fourth rider. And so a lot of teams are finishing with only four riders, losing two riders and therefore riders are losing a lot of time in that race. So I think Neve Fisher Black was someone who lost like four minutes. No, not four minutes. Neve lost two minutes on that stage. Lotta Kopecky was dropped before the line. Lucinda Brand lost four minutes. The last person on GC was eight minutes down. Like it was only a 20 kilometer TTT, but people were uh, losing time on that day because once you're out of the lineup, you're just, it's really hard to save any kind of time or energy. Um, And so even though we looked at the GC and thought, okay, you've only got 25 seconds back to Movistar, there were riders who, because of their individual performance that day, um, had already kind of put themselves in trouble and clearly already having a difficult start to the race like like Nee Fischerback. I feel like your your TTT um debate that you that you started last week but we didn't actually get into is one that's super interesting because we've I mean Lauren and I have said before on the podcast that we really like team time trials, but it definitely there's a lot of uh equipment issues that come into play when a lot of teams just can't compete with like the likes of Trek, for example. But I'm curious what Lauren and Gracie have to say about team time trials, having like been in the, been in the thick of it. Yeah. I think since they took away the TTT world title, it's, it's changed a lot because teams actually invested a bit of time at least years ago, um, even at team camps, they would identify the potential riders. Everyone got a shot, but, I mean, there were always riders that stood out that were going to be good in this discipline, so there was a bit more practice. And, I mean, Gracie's been in a lot more TTTs than I have, but at least from my own personal experience, it's something you really need to do and you need to know how to ride it. And if you can't ride um, in the formation, you can be an incredible time trialer and, I've had teammates before who were super individual time trialers but just could not do it. It's a completely different discipline. Um, the accelerations are, are really hard and um, it's like that on-off sort of power. And so I think that's what you're seeing is like there's just no chance to practice it. So if you're a rider like, um, well, I mean, Lucinda Brand was probably, I usually she does quite well in a TTT, so I'm just not sure how her, her day panned out that day, but you have to really be on it on the day. And then also um, the training you've done before it is super important. Um, I'm sure Gracie has more to weigh in on. Oh, not really, to be honest. I just, yeah, I agree. I think it's there was a lot more emphasis put on it a while back when it was at world championship levels and 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 more throughout the, the year you'd see it at the Energy Walk Tour uh, which is now renamed, but I'm not going to go through all the different names. <laughs> um, Sex tour. <laughs> it was at the, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure it was at the um, Holland Ladies Tour, the CMAC Tour for mm-hmm. quite a number of years. So there was a handful of opportunities through the season as well as Worlds. And, yeah, a big factor is cost 
but also logistics. I think there's just so many World Tour races this year. Um, it's the team trucks that are probably the ones, you know, some of the people that are struggling the most is staff this year. And logistically, getting equipment for different rosters of riders all the time, going back and forth to your service course, wherever that is. Some teams have service courses in Belgium. Some have them in Italy. They're kind of scattered all through Central Europe as are the races. And it's just like that constant coming and going, making sure they have the race bike, the spare bike of each rider that's going to be in that block of races, riders coming in and out. And then you're adding time trial bikes to that mix. And some team trucks actually don't have enough space to to carry that much equipment. They, they will bring it to a race such as this because it's a well tour race and it's a stage race. So you have to do it. But it's it means that they probably never got the chance to ride their TT bike outside of maybe a training camp because there just was no opportunity to. So you're not getting time on your bike alone and then you're not getting time on the bike practicing either. So as Lauren was saying, it's a highly technical um, format of racing and you need to practice a lot with your team to get it right. Um, Even the combination of riders like um, rider A behind rider B sometimes doesn't work even though they they need to be in the same team it's like making sure the combination of those six riders is good because some riders just don't work behind other riders it's like a whole art to it so yeah it's it's tricky so it's it in some ways it's like interesting to see for example fdj in third but you apart from trek you can't really predict any of the results at the moment for a team time trial I always found it really interesting that when Sunweb won the World Championships TTT a number of years ago, they had Corinne Rivera in front of Ellen Van Dyke because Ellen was just so much stronger than everyone else. That extra win that she had to break when Corinne was on the front was like kind of evened out the playing field. I thought it was super interesting, but I wonder if in the future we just won't see team time trials at all anymore because at this point there's only really like two a year and there's there's no point putting a bunch of effort from the team into a team time trial if there's only going to be two a year and there's only and then like on top of that there's only one that actually makes any difference because if you lose the Vigarda TTT who cares it's losing time in a team time trial that starts off a stage race is more important so uh, at that point like it does matter but I wonder yeah if like give it two or three more years we just won't have team time trials anymore. Mm. And I think from a gender point of view, like in the men's world tour, keep it because they can afford to do them and practice and have all the gear and have training camps because, you know, they have specialist teams for each grand tour. They have training camps for those teams. That's just how they run it. But in women's cycling, we're at this really awkward period where we have too many world tour races a strange spread of riders across lots of teams, more teams trying to get World Tour licenses. We just haven't kind of bridged that next gap between having a really strong, you know, solid World Tour level as well as that second tier below it and then a better spread of races. So I just think that adding team time trials in women's cycling currently, yeah, like it's it's not a great idea because it's it's just not viable at the moment for a lot of teams and I think it's, it's not addressing any issues. Like it's not, I don't know, I don't think it's bringing much to the sport where we need other things to be brought to the sport to make it better and more viable and more watchable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely the most important point you just said there, Gracie. It's not adding value. Yeah. All right, let's move on to stage two, which was the general classification day of the race. Tilda? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was a funny race in this respect in that the the GC was kind of backloaded, well, no, front-loaded to the front, uh, the first couple of stages of the race. So, yeah, we had five categorised climbs on stage two. It's important to note none of them were that high. Um, when you look at it on the profile, you know, they're all in scale with each other, but they were, you know, the highest one was like 600 metres or something um, for about... 2,100 metres of climbing all day. Um, 
a breakaway went early in the day. It started off, I think five riders went at first, but then Lucinda Brown and Sarah Roy quickly dropped the rest of the riders to spend most of the day out as a, a breakaway of two. Um, they worked pretty well together. Lucinda Brand uh, mopped up the Queen of the Mountains points to put her in that jersey. Uh, they were away, yeah, until basically the base of the penultimate climb, the fourth climb on the road, and Movistar set it up into the base of that climb, something we've seen them do quite a few times, and uh, yeah, closed the gap to the lead, and Annemiek van Vleuten hit the front and kind of, yeah, did a strong acceleration to carve out a pretty small group, so a in, at first, four riders went with her, which was Demi following Elisa Longo-Borghini, Mavi Garcia and Liana Lippert. And then she kind of just slowly rode them off her wheel uh, up the climb. Uh, Demi Vollering was predictably the last to hold on, but then as soon as Van Vleuten realised she only had one rider to get rid of, she put in another dig and went away from Van Vleuten and... That was it, as we've seen her do quite a few times. She just rode away, uh, descended that climb, went over the next one and went to the line solo. And it was pretty impressive the amount of time she managed to pull out quite quickly. Um, she ended up finishing just over two minutes ahead of the group. Um, so behind it, it regrouped a little bit. And I think that probably played into why she got so much time was because I think Demi Vollering and Elisa Longo-Bigini kind of wanted to regroup and perhaps slow down in the first instance um so yeah you had Elisa Longo-Bugini, Demi Vollering and Liana Lippert come in as a group of three uh but yeah they were two minutes down on Van Vleuten after literally two stages so it was pretty uh kind of wrapped up after that day but yeah it was it was again after if you would have predicted Czech Segafredo like on stage one you really would have predicted Annemiek van Vleuten to win this one she was worried it wouldn't necessarily be hard enough and that uh, everyone's level would be able to match hers a little bit too well on the climbs that weren't too big but actually the fact that Movistar made it so hard meant that when she went um, everyone was already tired and she just got the gap and went You could visibly like it, Demi's kind of like the way she just lost the wheel and then just like lost hope was visible she was just like how the hell does is this even happening again like you could just see her body just like slump a bit and she was just like okay bye but fair ride by her right because of the the lead up she kind of had and I think she did post something about that that she's not in tip-top condition I mean I don't think even if she was she would have held on but um, I just thought that was was still an impressive ride considering. I was really impressed with Leanna Lippert and also what this means for next year because we we questioned Leanna Lippert going to Movistar, but um, they I don't think Anamik has ever had anyone on her team with her that can help her on the climbs. Not that she needs it, but Leanna Lippert, you know, if she rides like she did on stage two next year, then they have a backup rider, which is a really interesting concept <laughs> for, you know, when it comes to Anamik and her dominance. She doesn't need it, but now she's kind of got it in the future. But the the group behind the three of them was like, I mean, it was a pretty big group of riders with Kashini Wadoma and Sylvia Persico, Juliette Labou, Anna Shackley. Like that group was huge. And I think this is a really interesting thing to keep an eye on in the future because... Um, I wrote something on cycling tips kind of about Anamik's uh, solo attacks that won her all three, quote, grand tours of the year. And the fight for second behind her was always pretty, pretty good. I mean, I think at the tour, Demi had that wrapped up, but there was a group of riders right behind that were really in contention for third. And so I feel like if you look at the results of stage two, like obviously you've got Aliza, Leanna, and uh, Demi were right there, but then close behind them, there's like 10 riders that could contend in the future. And I, I feel like keeping an eye on all of them is um, makes me really excited for Grand Tours, Grand Tours, any tours, the, the tours in the future. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think I think the TV kind of gives you the wrong idea about this sometimes because you see Van Vleuten right away and kind of blow the race up from the front and you think, oh God, it must be like breaking apart all over the place. Everyone's strung out the road. And because usually with the women's race, that you'll have two cameras in the race maybe. So you see the lead and the second group. You never see the third group, but when you go and check the results or when you see them come through the finish line, it's like, oh, actually that third group were not blown up. They were working well together and there were a lot of people in there. It wasn't like Van Vleuten's acceleration suddenly exploded the whole race. She obviously got away, but then behind, yeah, you had 12 more riders that were all within uh, like a minute of each other finishing. And Van Vleuten's two minutes ahead, yeah, but people talk about the time gaps and it's not like you go down the line and the time gaps are then huge and huge and huge, like minutes between each riders. And again, it seems disrespectful to Van Vleuten sometimes, but I think it is interesting to sometimes look at the results without her there and kind of look at her as an outlier. And then you can learn a lot more from the results otherwise. And yeah, if you'd had Logo Borghini win and then 13 riders within 45 seconds, no, sorry, 35 seconds, you wouldn't be saying, oh, like there's just one really dominant rider and there's not that many riders that are good on the climbs. You'd say, wow, loads of riders are really close to each other. Mm-hmm. I think talking about Van Vluten and her her solo moves that won her the pink jersey, yellow jersey, and red jersey this season is worth talking about because obviously every single one of the the races that she won, and the women don't have grand tours, but we do have three stage races that are linked to the men's grand tours or two that are linked to men's grand tours and one that is 10 days long. So I think it's kind of for argument's sake, we can call them grand tours. They are the three most important stage races of the year. And she won all three of them with just a solo move. Um, in, in the tour, it was in the final two stages here. We had stage two and in the Giro, it took a little bit longer, but she still took that stage, stage eight solo. So there was, uh, this, this thing that she does, she's not slowing down at all. (laughs) She's just, she's just on another level and remains Mm -hmm. to be. So it's going to be interesting in 2024 when she's not there. Um, what will it look like? Will there be some emergence of a rider that does step up? Because, you know, Anamique, um, well, Grace was teammates with her for years, but the one year I was teammates with her, she wasn't climbing at that level. She was getting there. And then she just kind of took off and never came back down. Um, so it will be interesting to see if, I don't know, could Demi take it to the next level like Anamique has done with age um, and just experience and Ticking all those one percent of boxes, I don't know. I, I would like to see a bit more of a, a closer race because it's fun. I enjoyed um, like the the racing style of stage three, where it's just aggressive and attacking. And um, but you can't look past the fact that she's just been phenomenal. And yeah, Anamique doing the the solo attack. Maybe some people think it's boring, but it's just incredible that she can do that and just keep turning the screws and turning the screws until she rides people off her wheel. I'm not really sure if we'll see another Anamique, to be honest. I think that we're going to see riders like Demi definitely develop further and become even more exceptional, but I just don't think that we're going to see an athlete do the prep that Anamique's done. I don't know if Mm. anyone wants to or even if it's, you know, the way that women's cycling is heading. I think she just really took it as her own project. And, and in some ways I'm really interested to see how the movie star team changes once she's gone because I see women's cycling as like, you know, the big teams and then the littler teams. And I never put movie star like in my mind in that group of the big teams, even though she's arguably been the most successful rider this year. I see it as an Anamique Van Vluten trio of wins not a movie star trio of wins whereas if someone if Demi had won all three tours I would have seen that as a victory for SD works and I just think it's funny I don't know if you guys think of it but I completely separate Annemiek Van Vluten from the movie star team and not I don't know why I just I just see her as her own entity in the Mm. current racing but I also see her as her own entity in performance and um just the um 
what's the word, approach that she's had to her racing and her fitness over the last five years. I just don't think that anyone's really going to replicate, and nor should they. I think that we're going to see some development in other ways that is arguably as hard, but just not in the same way that she did it, (laughs) if that makes sense. And I think she said that in an interview, right, that like she's done it her way and her way is unique to her and what she needs to do and just her personality and her life before cycling. Um, And that doesn't mean that the the young riders coming up need to look at her and think, oh, that's what I need to do. Um, But, yeah, actually I think it's going to be weird without her in the peloton. Um, and this stage just made me think of what we're going to see at Worlds. I guess we're going to get into this discussion, but listeners should should go back and re-watch that stage if you haven't and then think about that Mount Kira climb and potentially what that could mean for the, world, the World's Road Race, which is going to be a really long race and a really hard race. Yeah, and going back to that moment with Demi just not being able to follow her wheel, like I wonder what that means for the Dutch team going forward into the next week or two at the World Championships. Mm-hmm. Is like what's their morale like now as a group? Are they coming together or are they fractured? Um, what's the confidence? What's the team plan? <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting. I always find that interesting with pre-Worlds races of, how the dynamic plays out and who starts showing their cards and who doesn't and and how that really kind of happen, it ends up happening at World Championships. So, yeah, I think it's very interesting for the Dutchies. <laughs> and also throwing there the fact they're staying an hour and a half from the start, which uh, isn't going to be so nice. Mm, I've heard a few teams having to stay near Sydney Airport, so it's not a... Not ideal for training, right? No. <laughs> let's let's talk about stage three because Lauren's right. Stage three was super exciting. It was just attack after attack after attack in the finale. So, Tilda, break it down for us. Okay, let's think. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, stage three. It was a bit of a strange profile. Uh, because it basically it started off with one small climb and then the road essentially went up for 30 kilometers. I think the official climb was 16k, but from from when the road started going up to the for to when it flattened out, yeah, it was around 30 kilometers. Only three percent, so it wasn't super steep, but it was really long, really dragged out climb. And then at the finish, there was a th- well, it was essentially 30k of sort of false flat to the finish. Um, if you were looking at the route, you would recognize the name Aguilar de Campo from a stage of the world to Burgos, which originally confused me because I thought but that was a flat stage, essentially. Um, but in this area of Spain, there's a lot of, you can stay at quite a high altitude for quite a long time. So that stage essentially started at 800 meters and finished at 900 meter, meters. This stage started at zero meters and finished at 900 meters. So that's why that there was this big climb up to um the big plateau up at the finish and so yeah uh they didn't really want to let a break go i think anna kiesenhofer attacked early on on this stage as well um but they weren't letting her go that day uh lucinda brand got the points over the top of the first climb i think and then it was a pretty just drawn out process uh up the climb the attacks started and quite a few riders tried to go mavi garcia was the one who got uh, the biggest gap but she didn't really go until pretty close uh, to the finish and then she was dragged back before the the line sorry this is the finish of the climb so we're still 30k from the finish she was dragged back by an effort from uh, Van Vleuten and Vollering uh, so they were all back together heading into this 30k sort of up and down false flat finish and without any proper climbs to go, it was pretty hard to attack, but that didn't stop them trying. Grace Brown was originally away with Amber Crack in the last 28 kilometers, I think they went. Um, and this looked to be a pretty good move because although although it was a big group behind, it had whittled down a lot and not many riders had teammates, so it was difficult to chase. Uh, but they brought them back and then... Yeah, it was a few more riders trying to attack. It was like what we saw in Plue, like you just had to keep trying and trying. And eventually with uh, less than 10K to go, Grace Brown and Elise Chabé went off the front and 
uh, I think Vollering, I think it was Vollering. Someone said at the finish, oh, we kind of forgot to chase. Uh, they just kind of stalled for a moment and the duo just went up the road. And at that point, it was it was going to be pretty hard to bring them back. And yeah, coming into the finish, uh, Grace Brown hit the front and uh, Elise Chave couldn't really get around her. It was a bit of a drag sprint to the line and Grace Brown took uh, another victory this year. Yeah, you talk about world's prep. Uh, Grace mm-hmm. Brown. Yeah, like Gracie said, there are a lot of riders putting their hands up and saying, I'm in good form, let's go. <laughs> I just keep thinking about the worlds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do, Lauren. I'd love to hear some uh, inside information, but I, I don't know from a from an an outsider point of view, not knowing what the Aussie plan is. I think you'd be crazy not to build your team plan around Grace Brown. <laughs> it is now a time to mention, though, the length of these stages because we talk about worlds, which is a long race, and these. I were think not that's a good segue. Stages <laughs> like this was what this was less than 100k, which and this was the morning that. Van Royston went out and did 50k and everyone will sit there and think it's crazy but she probably does 150k a lot of days and so it wasn't like adding 50k to this 95 kilometer stage made a crazy 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 long day and yeah 95k the average is meant to be during a women's stage race 140k which this fell short of quite dramatically and sometimes it makes for exciting racing yes the shorter stages but sometimes you think if we're trying to make a hard stage, it needs to be a little bit longer than that. I don't know if that's just me being harsh. Abby and I were so ready to be like outraged at the fact that Van Vleuten went out for a ride in the morning. And then after like thinking about it, it was like, <laughs> oh, no, actually like the stage is less than 100k long. And, and it started at She's training so for a race that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So most teams actually did a pre-ride, but probably yeah, an hour or something like that. Anamik went for 50 and she was saying, she said that she's preparing for Worlds. Whether the time zone thing, I don't know if that really translates. But I didn't understand that. How does that? Well, I mean, that's the time of more. So basically at 8, 9.30 in the morning, Euro time, CET, is when the women will be finishing um, in Australia because we finish at 5.30 roughly. So you guys will be having to wake up early um, to make sure you catch the race, your favourite thing. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I think what I was going to say was um, the article you wrote, Tilda, you did bring up the fact that there is that minimum um, standard set by the UCI and, like, for a race that has put out there, they have ambitions to really make this a grand tour and have a week-long race and all that and sort of mirror what um, Zwift have done with the Tour de France femme, um, they've kind of missed the mark with the stages. I don't, I can't actually speak to as why they haven't made the stages longer. Uh, I think you said something to do with probably money behind everything. Um, and then it made me think that I've seen Ceratis, is that the correct way to say it? They've sponsored a bunch of races this year. Yeah, they really actually. have. And obviously a team as well. Exactly. So, I mean, when, and then it made me think, okay, well, with money and a big sponsor and all that, like obviously Zwift are all in with the Tour de France firm. And whenever they commit to something, they do it 110%. Like it's always really good what they put out. So for a sponsor like Ceratis, who's obviously, I think, invested in women's cycling, I know someone who works for that company, um, it'd be better off if they just put all their, their resources um, keep the women's team, of course, but put their resources into this one grand tour. It's just an idea. Yeah, I think Tilda Til made some really good points about whether or not this race kind of lived up to expectations. We can talk about, I think, after we're done breaking down the the stages themselves, but it was it, it's interesting to see a 100K stage followed by a 96K stage. Both of those stages are pretty short, uh, for a women's race and then followed, followed up with like 160 K stage, which is like relatively long. So they, it, the, the way that the stages were laid out were, was really interesting. I, I feel like it's hard to, um, hard to top the way that the tour built that their 
race stage by stage, honestly. Um, like I, I just keep thinking back to the layout of that race and how well it went when I think of stage races now. Mm -hmm. I think it goes back to, again, like at least my point of view, full investment from the company that have had someone, again, Zwift, working full-time on this race for over a year. Um, and you can see the, the result, right? Yeah. I wonder how much the ASO actually like is involved in these races. Cause obviously both races are owned by the ASO, but the, mm -hmm. the outcome of the tour de France femme, it, it, it is the tour de France. So it's kind of a little bit different, but the outcome is a lot more positive than maybe the outcome of this race. Anyway, let's, let's talk about that when we get to then we'll, we'll talk about stage four and five first stage four was a super exciting finale with a very exciting winner. Tilda? Yeah. yeah, stage four was the one that I actually didn't watch. So this is the only one that I'm flying on a wing to. Had a day off. Can you believe it? <laughs> no, I honestly can't. I didn't know that you were allowed to have can, days off. <laughs> can we talk about these back, these buddy back to back stage races? I mean, they're half of the riders, but they're half of me, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, Saturday's stage uh, it was super long and Early in the stage, someone named Anna Kiesenhofer went up the road, which <laughs> is a little bit of deja vu, potentially. Um, and a bit of PTSD for some people. <laughs> <laughs> I, loved, I loved the Twitter um, threads. It was great. <laughs> you would think. But you would think that they would think, oh my goodness, it's Anna Kiesenhofer, the one person in the peloton we can't give a big gap. So what did they do? She got 10 minutes up the road, <laughs> which was, uh, yeah. I mean, we didn't get to see, obviously, the first part of the stage. We only saw the final hour or so. So I have no idea why this happened or what they were doing, if they just forgot who she was, if they just, I think there might be part of it in the, normally when a break goes away, they'll kind of build up a lead and then it will settle down. And I think they thought at some point, Kisanoff would settle down but no she just kept going and kept dragging out this lead <laughs> uh, which after saying that the GC should be wrapped up uh, she then was briefly in the virtual lead because even though she started the stage seven minutes down uh, she was then nine minutes ahead so was in the virtual lead um, she crashed at one point uh, but still retained a 10 minute Jeez. lead after she got on her bike um, and Movistar kind of after around the halfway point I would say they then kind of started taking it seriously and really got on the front and Van Vleuten herself was taking uh, taking turns on the front uh, and the time did eventually start to to come down, whether that was because of the excellent chase or because Kiesenhofer was just tiring up, it's hard to say. And then on, on the last categorised climb, she was kind of just shelling time. She was clearly getting tired out. Uh, the time was dropping down, but it was still within the last 10K of, let's remember, at 160K stage. It wasn't, no, it wasn't even the last thing. She was caught in the last kilometer, wasn't she? So it was yeah, uh, on that like, final climb. But she still had actually quite a bit of time in the last 10K, right? Yeah, she had kind of a minute and a half with 10K to go, I think. And then, so even looking at that, you would have thought it was a little bit touch and go, whether you could close that gap. But then, yeah, in this kind of last 1K, this kick to the line, uh, they came past her and... Uh, Lippert, I think, started to lead out the sprint, but Sylvia Persico was the one who made it to the line first, just in front of Demi following, I think. Uh, and so, yeah, a rider who had an incredible Tour de France fam, and we've been talking about as kind of one of the riders of the season. She's she had an excellent cross season, and then has really translated that to the road, uh, and she finally has her World Tour win on a on a pretty tough stage, actually. She actually doesn't have a contract for next year that we know of yet. Like, she must according, have that. She for sure, yeah, for sure she's signed, but we don't know if she's staying at Valkar or if she's moving to another team. Yeah. She's like, how many race days has she had this year? Someone looked it up. It's insane for such a young rider to, she, it feels like she's been in every race and she's been up there in every race. Mm, super consistent. Probably one of the most consistent this year. Yeah. Um, an incredible, yeah. Like for a young rider, that's just amazing. Actually, um, 
And I can't help but think about her in, in the coming weeks, to be honest, and what she's going to do there. She's had 54 road race days this year. Yeah, That's I mean, the cyclocross bad. season just kicked off too. So <laughs> I, think I we hope should she talk- has a month off. I think we should talk also about SD Works and what whatever the final went for them because it was unclear whether they were riding for Demi or Lotte Capecchi in that finale. Yeah. And you'd think that Lotte Capecchi would probably be their rider for the day given the kick that she has. Um, but it ended up being Demi in second. And I think part of that was positioning. Elise Longo Borghini just kind of took that turn uh, and, and cut not cut Lotta Capecchi off, obviously, but but close close the gap to Lotta Capecchi being able to come around. Um, but I I feel like Lotta Capecchi she she's since her incredible start to the season she's not really had very many great rides and like back to the world's conversation since that's the number one topic these days. She's Belgium's hope to win the world championships, and I don't know if I would pick her to win the worlds. I probably would have a year ago, but now I don't know. I thought I saw glimmers of her form coming back the past days um, when she was climbing quite well, but I, I agree with you, Abby. She she wouldn't be my immediate pick as one of the main contenders going into the world championships at the moment. And on this stage, to me, I mean, we know Demi does Demi things and sometimes she drives it on the front, um, even when she's sometimes a protected rider, but uh, it looked like for a, a while there she was trying to set up Lotta, so perhaps, yeah, out of position. But as um, as a sprinter, or if that's the stage you're going for, it's, it's kind of up to you in the end to put yourself in the right place. It was quite a technical finish. It actually reminded me a little bit of the Strata finish, just twisting mm. roads on that pave and a little bit of cobbles. It was It looked quite difficult, actually, and I think – Lotta was actually in her hoods, which I found interesting. Uh, Sylvie was in her drops and she was just, you could just tell she was having a good day. She just was picking the right wheels, giving herself some space, whereas it looked a bit like Demi and Lotta were just a little bit more desperate, not quite thinking as each second passed about exactly where they wanted to be. So I think Mm. Sylvia Persico won it fair and square and she deserved it. She had an awesome day and she... It, it just looked like she was thinking on her feet really well. I think this was her first World Tour victory. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I really like this finish. I thought it was a great finish, and, yeah, I'm really excited to see Sylvia Persico get a victory because she's obviously been really, really close. So I'm interested to see who she's riding for next year. If she's staying for Valcar, it's not a bad decision on her part. Um, obviously, they've done a really good job of supporting her up until now, but – it wouldn't. I also wouldn't be surprised to see her move on to a bigger team. I think Valkar can probably support her more than a bigger team could at this point, um, given that whatever team she goes to, she'll have competition uh, to for the leader leadership role. But here, she definitely doesn't. All right, final stage. Speaking of Valkar, final stage won by Elisa Balsamo. This is a sprint. Can we talk about Elisa Longo Borghini's like attack or lead out, whatever that was? Yeah, she uh, for a second I thought she was just going for it. Like, yeah, just yeah. I think she's like we, we've spoken about it before, but her acceleration is just improved so much. It's Lisa amazing. Yeah, at one point I was like, if they hesitate, and actually it forced Alex Manley out because I think she was like, "Fuck, I have to go." which mm-hmm. in the end, you know, her chance of them sprinting was just done, but it was like sort of reaction. Someone had to go. If Alex hadn't reacted, I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking the same, like it was a mistake for Alex to do that, but I think she, was, she wasn't backing herself against Lotta or um, Balsamo, and I think she just knew that was her best opportunity to try and go with Elisa because she is probably a little bit better of a a longer drag uphill sprinter, maybe not the pure speed, even though she's capable of it. I think she just doesn't quite, she either doesn't quite have it at the moment or she doesn't, she doesn't have the confidence to do it. But I don't know. I, Lotta would have had to make the decision because she was kind of next in line. I'm not sure if she would have 
um, been able to get back to Elisa in time, um, Longo Borghini. So, yeah, it's really interesting. But how, like, Longo Borghini's acceleration was impressive, but Balsamo's was equally as impressive as she ran at everyone's wheels. Like, she was clearly the best in that group. (laughs) It was awesome to watch that overhead shot of her just, you know, it was daylight. (laughs) What a season she's had. Like, yeah. Just incredible. Yeah. Uh, her, I mean, if you think about like, she wasn't supposed to win the world championships last year. Uh, she was obviously a minor favorite, but I think that we, when we did the pre world pod, we picked a bunch of other riders to win the world championships, but she won that world championships and she's really done the Jersey so much. Uh, she's, she's made us proud that she's our world champion this year with all the wins that she's had. I mean, she started off the season with three back-to-back wins in the one days, um, with Trofeo, Alfredo, Binda, Bruce, Dupana, and again, Webblegem. And then won two stages of the Giro. She had kind of a lackluster tour de France, which I think a lot of that has to do with the team's decision to send her to the Giro and then to the tour. Cause she's still a super young rider. But then to kind of end her run as the world champion with a win at the Ceretizit Challenge on the final stage in Madrid is is just amazing. I mean, she's we're going into the world championships. She is probably not going to win it for a second time. But the, it's been a great year for her. Her first year in the world tour and the world champion, the, the, the pressure was on her this year. And I think the only time that she kind of fell victim to that pressure of being the world champion on a team like Trek was, was the tour de France. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Italy is another interesting team going into the worlds because they obviously have quite a few cards to play, which many nations don't have. Um, and then it's a question of, are they all in for one rider, which we've seen them do and do it very well. Or will they do perhaps what I think the Dutch will do is play two cards. But then, again, would you want, yeah, we don't need to get into it now, but it's just food for thought. No, I mean, it is, it's super interesting. Um, but the if you look at the top 10 for the final stage, which I don't think is an accurate representation of how the world will go, but if you just look at it, like, we got Italy in first, third, fifth, sixth, and 10th. Mm-hmm. They put a lot of riders mm-hmm. in the top 10 and they've been doing that all season long. Yeah. I mean, I think Tilda, you made some really good points on Twitter about that. The race didn't really like they have said that they want to be a grand tour. They want to be on the level of the Giro and the tour, which they are a little bit right now, just because they finish the same day as the men's Vuelta on the same finish. So they still have that connection, but this race was, I don't know if it's just a victim of the, the timing on the calendar that everyone's pretty tired at this point or what, but it did. uh, I mean, I forgot that it was on almost every day. <laughs> I don't think um, that it was going to be super well planned um for this year but being on ground at the tour and being in that media and ASO compound every day you could see that the ASO staff was surprised at how well the Tour de France farm was going so I think that that is going to be not just used going forward for the Tour de France farm, it's going to be used going forward for any ASO run women's race because they're like, okay, it does work. There is interest. Let's actually put a bit more effort into the other things as well. I think the main point that Tilda made though was that the will is there, but the resources aren't, no? Yeah, and I, I think it's probably good to point out that uh, the welter and therefore this race are owned by ASO but I wouldn't say they were run by ASO because it's kind of ASO own a lot of events that they don't necessarily run in the same way that they run the Tour de France. And so Unipublic are this other race organizer who uh, organized this race. And I think the point that I was trying to kind of get across in Twitter and the article I wrote for Velo News is that I don't want to sit here and be so, so critical when, yes, the will is there and also what they've been doing this race is each year building upon what they have. Um, and I think 
if we were expecting them to come out with something equivalent to the Tour de France fam, which obviously was not something that was built upon slowly. It was not, it's not La Course version 2.0. It's something totally new. And it had a huge launch and like two years of fanfare building up to it. And it was this massive moment like all over the world because it was this brand new thing. Like, of course, that's going to have a bit more momentum than something that's been gradually growing. And yeah, I don't know if maybe it is a good thing that races like the Tour de France fam and the fact that the Giro have really stepped up in reaction to that. It is good that races are doing that but also it means that our expectations are much higher and I think actually we need to sometimes be a little bit more balanced and if we uh, expecting this to be like the Tour de France fan was was too much to ask really when it doesn't have the support in any aspect of the word but I also saw a lot of very 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 critical stuff leveled at the organizers about like they don't care about this race they think it's just an afterthought to the men's race and I just really don't think that tallies because why why would you be growing this race year on year and trying to make a longer race and next year having hopefully a seven-day race if it didn't matter to you like if they didn't care it would have just had the same fate as the course being the one Madrid stage every year and so I think yeah we need to kind of realize that yes they do care but it is clear they don't, they don't have the resource. But just because you don't have the money for a huge team and therefore all the stuff that comes with that, because that that affects not only the race and the way it's organised, but things like social media and the updates. If you've got one person versus a team of five people, you're going to have a very different story. And so I think, yeah, sitting here and saying that they don't care about it is maybe not true, but we need to remember that, yes, t- races like the Tour de France have loads of money and can do what they want, but that that is still not true for even races that are associated with the men's welter. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what they do with the race next year. Cause yeah, obviously there's a possibility of it expanding days, but also moving on the calendar, which will, I think have a huge impact on, on the race itself. Cause this is such a, this time of year is such a weird time of year. We've got the world championships coming up. Obviously we can't stop talking about it. And there's also a lot of exhaustion going on. Um, especially this year with the added race days, but we had other stuff to talk about, but I think we're going to wrap it up because at this point we're almost at an hour. Um, and we can talk about Alice Barnes going to human powered health next year, as well as the British team for the world championships. Cause it will actually, um, matter a little bit more next week when we talk about world. So we'll do a full world's preview next week. Before we wrap up this episode, this week's episode is also brought to you by Shimano and their new RX6 gravel shoes. Shimano's new RX6 gravel shoes are versatile gravel shoes with a comfortable fit. They're offered in unisex, wide, and women's, so riders of all shapes and sizes can focus on the fun of gravel riding instead of thinking about how their feet feel. Featuring wide-spaced lugs for stability off the bike and breathable material, Shimano RX6 shoes are ready for the mud, dust, and mixed terrain of any gravel ride. Thank you so much to Shimano for sponsoring this episode. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thank you to you guys for talking women cycling with me. Have a great week. Bye.